If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to look at this book together starting this uh, new series. So last week we looked a little bit at the Apostle Paul and his life and what God did in his life. And so this week we're going to get into the text itself in the book of Romans and spend, uh, apart from the summer, we'll, we'll be in Romans until roughly the beginning of December. So in the summer we'll take a little bit of a break and we'll go through the life of Abraham. And so since Abraham is such a vital person to understand in the Bible and is referred to so many times in Romans, it's probably good for us to get to know Abraham a little bit better too. So that's what we're going to do. Now, before I read this, I want to tee up the series. So you might remember we've been doing this through James and all the way back for several years. So I want to tee up the book of Romans for you so that you can have a framework in your mind as we begin to go through each chapter and each verse. So three things I want to tell you to tee up Romans. The first is the theme of the book is found in this chapter, chapter 1, verse 16. The theme of the book is this, that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. The gospel is God's power. Now, we're going to talk more about that today, but I just want you to know that when God says to us that the gospel is his power, he, he doesn't mean that um, the gospel is like uh, God's spinach or our spinach. Like, you know, Popeye's spinach that makes him real strong. It's not like, it's not like Thor's hammer. Um, when the Bible says that the gospel is God's power, it means that the gospel is life. It means that the gospel is oxygen. It means that it is light. It means that, that it is sight. It means that it is perception. It means that, that it is life itself. It means that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It's not these little basic things. It is, it is everything for us. That's the theme of the book. But the gospel is power. It's God's power. Second, I want you to know that when we go through the book of Romans, we're going to be going on a journey. And there are two ways that you can go on a journey. One is you can um, approach something as if you're in kind of like a helicopter and hovering around. Another is you can climb the mountain. And what we're going to do is climb. We're going to do some mountain climbing over the next number of months together. And that means this journey is not going to be easy. So I want to tell you two stories to describe our journey that we're going to be on together. The first one is a story about my dad. My dad grew up in a different Christian tradition than we have here. And as I was growing up, my dad transitioned into this type of Christian tradition, meaning Presbyterian. And I remember asking my dad one time, Dad, what made this change in your life? How did you become Presbyterian growing up something else and being ordained in a different denomination and, and educated in a different expression of Christianity? How, how, what happened? How did you get to this point? My dad said this, well, when I got out of seminary, I kept reading the book of Romans, and I couldn't reconcile the book of Romans with everything that I had been taught the Bible said. And I knew the problem wasn't with Romans. So it took him many years to work out what this book that we're going to look together says, because it was very different from what he had been taught Christianity was and who God was and all those things. So 
That's going to be part of our journey, is that the journey is going to stretch us. And it might make you feel really uncomfortable, but I know this, God will change us through this journey. I just need you to know that. The Bible is meant to change us, and that's good whenever we're changing in accordance with his word. Does that make sense? The second story I mentioned to you actually last week. You remember the illustration of the thief on the cross dying and entering heaven? And he was kind of going through the interview phase. Again, this is not real. This is just imaginative. And imagine what it would have been like for him to enter into heaven. And the angels say, well, why are you here? And he says, what? I don't know. Well, how many Bible studies have you been to? Zero. Well, well, let's get this. Let's look at your doctrine. What do you think about justification by faith alone? Never heard of it. Can you imagine this dialogue going back and forth? Have you been baptized? Nope. What do you, what's your doctrine of scripture? I don't even own one. Well, then why are you here? Why did you come into heaven? Remember his answer? Because the guy on the middle cross said I could come. This journey is not only going to stretch us, but this is going to be a journey in which what we focus on really comes to light. What I mean by that is, as we go through the book of Romans, we might discover that we really like to obsess over ideas. And what we might find out is that even though ideas are really important, doctrine is really, really important, we should be obsessing over an all-sufficient Savior. That ought to be way more important to us than obsessing over doctrine. Which means that if you're here this morning and you don't give a rip about doctrine, hang on. Because the word of God is full of it and it's gonna make you wonder what is happening to you if you really get into this and think about it. And for those of you that obsess over doctrine, it's really gonna push on you too. It pushes on me because it makes me wrestle with, am I just obsessed with ideas or or? Do these concepts take me to the all-sufficient Christ? And will I obsess over him? Third, so we got the theme. We have the fact that we're going to go on a journey and we're going to be climbing a mountain. And finally, questions. I I want to prepare you for this book. I want you to know that this book is going to force you to come face to face with all of your greatest fears. I just want to tell you that on the front end. I want to prepare you. What are you going to do? I'm asking you ahead of time. What are you going to do when you have to face all of your greatest fears? Let me list some of them for you you might find out, we might find out together that we are far more lost than we assume. What are you going to do when that happens? You might find in going through the book of Romans that God is so much bigger than you have ever been taught. 
than you have ever heard. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when the God of the Scriptures blows every category that you have been taught, this is God? What are you going to do when you realize that the war that's going on within you is way deeper than you want to admit? That the struggle that's going on within, the challenges that you face, the demons inside of you, the skeletons, what are you going to find out when, when the war that's going on inside your head and inside your heart, what are you going to do when that war is much deeper than you want to admit? What are you going to do when you find out that suffering is necessary? You, are you ready for that? What are you going to do when you find out that your future is far more treacherous and glorious than you can imagine. Both. It's going to be far more treacherous and far more glorious than you can even imagine. You ready for that? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm connecting this directly to fear because I think that their future is so glorious that it scares us to death. I mean it. When we get in these chapters and start understanding more of God's mission for the world and what he's going to do, and we start hearing things like creation itself is groaning to be set free, what are you going to do when the future is far more glorious than, than, than you can imagine? We'll end with this. What are you going to do when you realize that you are not enough and that God is the only anchor for your life. What are you going to do? So that's the tee up. I hope that that intrigues you a little bit. I realize half of you may not come back next week because who wants to face fears, right? I get it. I can't imagine what my dad went through when he was exploring things and trying to relearn everything. Does that make sense? You know what it's like to relearn something? Or be exposed to something you've never heard before? And how that just rips you up? Makes you wonder all kinds of things about who you are, what you've been taught, where you've been, what you're doing, what you're going to do, what you're thinking about, what you've been thinking about. You know when that happens? Get ready. Let's read together Romans 1. And we'll read the first 17 verses and then we'll try to tackle this in about 30 minutes, 35 minutes. Listen to this. This is the word of God. This is life. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Sounds kind of encouraging, doesn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would write its truth upon our hearts. We ask that you would take the truth and form and reshape us, shape us again, make us into who we ought to be. Remind us that we're not here to learn how to be nicer. We're not here because this is some five-step program on being a better human. We're here because we need to be changed and we need to be more like Christ. And so please, Holy Spirit, cause us to see Christ today and to lay hold of him afresh. Make Jesus more beautiful, believable, trustworthy, that we might lean with all that we are on him. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. So a few years ago, we celebrated Jenny's birthday. And what I did for her that year was I ended up making or trying to make her favorite dessert. It was a cake that she loves. It actually was her great-grandmother's recipe for this cake. She's been, she had almost every year since she was a little girl on her birthday. So being the amazing cook that I am, that was a joke. I know visitors, I cannot cook. I can make cereal and, you know, things like that. So I decided that I was going to embark on this tremendous journey of baking and making this cake. And by the way, it was incredibly difficult to make, just so you know. It wasn't like a normal cake. There was all kinds of special things to it, like the icing. Oh, listen to this. The, I'm going to make you hungry for a second. The icing had to be um, uh, made and, and warmed very slowly. And so as, a, as I was making the icing, I had a styrofoam cup of water because, you know, what you're supposed to do is the icing is being made. You, you take uh, a little uh, spoonful, if you will, and try to drop a little bit of the icing that's warming up into this cup of water because when you drop it into the water and it forms a, uh, like a softball, like it forms a ball, you're at the right temperature. And if you don't do it at just the right time, if, if you cook it just too much, it's going to burn. If you don't do it enough, it won't stay on the cake. So it just has to be done perfectly. And anyway, it was a tremendous saga. I mean, the, I made both 
parts of the cake and, and, and I was washing the dishes while things were cooling off and whatever and the pan slips out of my hand and flies across, hits a counter and then smacks into the cake and splits it in two. And I was, you know, there was my whole day and my year for, you know, wondering what's going to happen to my life, you know, just ruin the cake that I've been spending hours on working on this. So anyway, as you can tell, I'm still traumatized by this endeavor. And I made the cake and, and it looked horrific, okay? It looked horrible. It tasted great. It tasted so good, I will never try to make it again. Just so you know, I won't do it again. But I had to get all the ingredients right, and, and then we enjoyed the cake together with friends and family, and it was a fantastic evening. And even though the cake was good, probably the best part was the shrimp and grits. Man, that was great that night. So the reason I'm telling you all this about ingredients and a cake and making this and celebrating together and enjoying being with people and enjoying good things with people is this. What we have in this first part of the book of Romans, in chapter one, we have all the ingredients that we need, all the ingredients that we need in order to live life knowing that all the bad things will turn out for good. All the good things will never be taken away and the best is yet to come. Did you catch that? We have all the ingredients in these first 17 verses to live in a way such that all of the bad things that can ever happen in your life, that have happened in your life, everything bad can turn into good. And whatever's good will never be taken away and the best is yet to come. So we got six ingredients this morning. We're gonna roll through these quick. Here's ingredient number one. And by the way, this is, you, you might be able to tell, this is all about the gospel. Paul mentions that word over and over and over in these 17 verses. So, ingredient number one is we see the effect of the gospel. Just on the surface of this text, just on the surface of these 17 verses, we could easily miss this. The effect of the gospel is that it creates community. Don't miss the fact that, that Paul is in another place, probably Corinth, and he is writing to a bunch of people in Rome, the epicenter of the ancient world. He's writing to those who are in Rome around, 50, around the year 57. And Paul identifies himself both as a servant and an apostle. Did you notice that in verse 1? As if to say, my life is completely given over to God. I serve him and that is my duty. That is my responsibility. That is my joy. That is my delight. And I'm also coming as an apostle. I am one in a strict sense who is technically a true apostle, I saw the risen Christ and he commissioned me to preach the gospel and plant churches. It's also true in a general sense that he was an apostle, that the church actually sent him. He didn't go on his own. He didn't start his own ministry. He was sent by the institution, by the church to go and plant churches. And the gospel had gone from Jerusalem to Rome in about 25 years, which may not seem like a big deal to you, 
but that's 1,400 miles. And the gospel had gone from Jerusalem all the way to Rome in just a very short period of time, such that there were people there that made up a church, probably multiple churches in Rome. And that Paul addresses this letter to them because something had happened to him and something had happened to them. And look at what he says, and I hope that you will hear this in verse 7 and 8 and that you will receive this as if God were to write us a letter in North Carolina, in Winterville, in Greenville. Look at what Paul says. He says, you are loved of God. You have been set apart to be holy. You, you people of God, have God's grace and peace. And may that be multiplied to you. So that Paul writes this letter to this church. He's never been there. He didn't plant the church. He's writing to people that he knows. If you look at chapter 16 of Romans, you'll find out there's a list of 20-some names, maybe as many as 30. He knew all those people in the Roman church. That's why he's saying to them, greet this person and this person. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, names we don't pick out too much and name our children. And he says, please greet these people because he knows them. Beloved, don't miss the effect of the gospel. It creates community such that this guy, Paul, who was an enemy of the church and tried to persecute the church, do you remember that from last week? Is now here, excited about the church. In verses 10 through 13, he says, look, I need you to know, church, I need you to know, I have heard about you. Your faith has gone all over the world. People know that you are a body of believers that trust in Jesus and live for him, that are committed to planting the church, that are committed to having a healthy church, that are committed to hearing the gospel and working together. By the way, there were problems in the church in Rome, and we'll get to that. Paul says, I have wanted to come to you, but so far I've been hindered from doing so. And I hope I can. I don't know if I will, but when I do come, if I were able to come, I would love to bring you a gift. As a matter of fact, if we can, if we can meet, it would be for, he says, mutual encouragement. Don't ever forget the effect of the gospel is to create community. It means that people that used to be enemies and at odds can be friends. It means that God is doing something radical in the world where he is bringing people together that are all united because of this one guy named Jesus and what he has done and who he is. And that may, that may mean that some of you today that are here, the only thing that may, the most profound thing that may happen to you today that you're aware of is that you came into this building and someone said hello to you, greeted you, not because of what you could do for them, not because you've done anything for them, but just the simple hello. That is the kind of thing that the gospel does in people's lives. It opens them up and makes them friendly and enables them to want to talk to other people and to do things together. That's the first ingredient. The second one is this, the age of the gospel. Look in verse 2. This is also easy to miss. The Apostle Paul says, 
I have been set apart by the gospel for the gospel, which has been known for a long time through the prophets in the scriptures. You see that? This has been foretold beforehand. Don't miss this. There is not a gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not as though with the coming of Jesus, the gospel started. The gospel has always been around. Remember, the Apostle Paul would read the Old Testament, and what would he think? Oh, rules. What would he think? Oh, God, the Old Testament is primarily about this people. No. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It is about the gospel. Remember Stephen when he died had been telling the history of Paul's people, the history of the Jewish people, and he had been proclaiming that the Messiah was coming and it was actually Jesus Christ. And he did that from all the parts of the Old Testament. Paul never, ever, ever looked at the Old Testament to find Christ. He thought something else was on display in the Old Testament. He thought this was something different in the New Testament, and it's not. God changed his mind and he began to read the Old Testament scriptures differently because he finally realized that the Old Testament was about Jesus. And for the Apostle Paul and for us, we should remember that the gospel started in Genesis. The Apostle Paul is the one that describes Jesus as the second Adam. The Apostle Paul is the one who understood the mission of God through the life of Abraham, that God has always had a mission to spread his glory throughout the world. And that is not the way that he understood Abraham prior to coming to faith in Christ. And all the law that we have in the Old Testament, Paul would say, yeah, the law is meant to bring us to, can you guess who it is? It starts with a J and ends with Jesus. He understood that all of the law was meant to bring us to Christ. Not that it was irrelevant, not that it didn't matter, it was glorious because it showed us Christ. Remember, it was the Apostle Paul that told us that Christ is the Passover lamb. Remember, the Apostle Paul writes these words as someone who used to know the Old Testament, who was trained in the Old Testament and completely misunderstood the Old Testament. But now that Christ has come into his life, he sees that the gospel has always been around. So he can read the Old Testament and he finds Jesus and he looks for Jesus because Jesus is the point of everything in the Old Testament. Don't miss that. The gospel is old, it's ancient. It's not a fad, it's not new. It didn't start with the coming of Christ. The gospel has always been around. Always, always. Always. Ingredient three. We've got the effects of the gospel, the, the age of the gospel. And Paul shows us here who gets to participate in this gospel. Look at verse four. Look at um, verse 13 and 14. Look at verse 16. Look at all the, those. You want to know who can participate in this? Well, let me tell you. The nations. Doesn't that excite you? The nations. God is after the nations. That means that the United States is, God, is not God's measuring stick for determining how well he's doing. Take that in. God is after the nations. 
That means Jew and non-Jew. That means Greek and non-Greek. That means Greek and barbarian, meaning we might call those rednecks nowadays. God is after all types of people all over the world, everywhere. God is on a mission all the time to spread his glory. And that means, if you're here this morning, if you want to participate in this thing called Christianity and participate in this mission of God and understand this gospel, it means you just need to believe. That's it. That you take in this story and it actually becomes your story. You take in what God says about you and you start to think the way God says about you. You start to think the way God thinks about you. It's just faith. It's realizing that God is the one who is sovereign and over all. The next ingredient is powerfulness. Verse 16 tells us that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. Did you catch that? In other words, let's say it a different way. The gospel is not a performance-enhancing drug, okay? It's not a PED. The gospel is power itself. So that by receiving the gospel, what you have received is forgiveness, what you've received is an identity. What you've received is the enabling power to say no to sin. It means that you've received the enabling power to follow Jesus and obey him with your thoughts and your words and your deeds. It means that the gospel is it means that if you have received the Lord Jesus, you have the power of an infinitely glorious God pulsating through your body, pulsating through everything that you are. So that things look a little different than if you're just trying to live for yourself. So that things look a little different if life is just about you. That God himself is working in you and through you. He's working on you. Which of course means that you might have this question, well, how do I know if God's power is pulsating through my life? How do I know if God is at work in my life? How do I know that? Well, let's go back to what we talked about last week. You can always know that God is at work in your life when you know that something has a hold of you. And something outside of yourself has a solid, firm grip on you that you can't get away. And there's this internal wrestling that's going on because something has gotten a hold of you. And it's not just that there's this power outside of ourselves that's at work in us when God is working on us. It's that that power becomes deeply disruptive. Do you remember this? It means that you're starting to look at your life and you're starting to look at reality and you're starting to think about, is the way that I'm looking at the world right? Because I see an awful lot of gaps with how I'm looking at the world and yet what God says about the world. 
You start recognizing these gaps in how you approach, I don't know, trials, suffering, how you approach joy, how you approach everything. There's this, there's this deep unrest to where you begin to not only wrestle with this power, but you begin to think about, well, maybe I'm not enough after all. And it's not just deeply disruptive. It means that things are starting to click. Your mind is starting to awaken to truth because it's been asleep. To use more biblical language, it's been dead. And you begin to awaken to what is true and you begin to see things in a different way because the love seems so much more powerful than it did before. And the desire for things is reprioritized. And you begin to realize that something not only has a hold of me and it's turning me inside out, but things are starting to click and make more sense than they did before. Well, it means that you're being made new and everything looks new. Well, after the gospel is powerfulness, we need to also think about this. The next ingredient for us is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. And that, of course, is Jesus himself. Look at the very end of verse one all the way through verse four. Look at what it says about Jesus. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church that he loves and he's excited about them and wants to come to see them. And he says, remember this Christ. He, he, he was a descendant of David. He was a son of David. And he goes on to proclaim that he was also the son of God. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that he was a true and real descendant of David. He was a real man a real human being, which means that, like us, he learned how to walk, he learned how to run, he learned how to eat with a fork. It means that he knew what it was like to face temptation. Matter of fact, the temptation that he faced was far, was far worse and more intense than the temptation that we face. Because we have things inside of us that compel us to think that temptation is attractive. So it's like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And then we go, not Jesus. He didn't have a sinful nature. So for him, the temptation was far more fierce because he was repulsed by it. It was far weightier on him than even us. Never forget that this Jesus was a real man. He knows what it's like to have thorns pressed into his head and break the skin and start bleeding. He knows what it's like to have a very sharp weapon pushed into his side. He could feel that. This is someone who knows you better than anyone else, better than anyone ever can know you. Jesus is the son of David. He is a real human being who knows everything about you from his own experience. 
It's not an abstraction for him to to know what it's like to face temptation. It's not an abstraction for him to suffer. It's not an abstraction for him to enjoy relationship and to have friendship. It's real. It's real. This is why he can sympathize with you and me and never forget that he's not just man, but look what he says. He is also the son of God. And he is declared to be the Son of God in power. Did you notice that? Because what he did, what Jesus did on the cross in the empty tomb means that he broke death. He broke it. It means that he is the firstborn of the new creation. It means that the powers of the age to come are alive in this world because Christ came and suffered, because Christ arose from the dead and broke death. It means that he is fully man and fully God, and he has all authority and all power, and the powers of the age to come are working in you and me and in the world. Isn't that amazing? That's the heart of the gospel. It's wrapped up with this God-man, Jesus Christ. So when Paul says that he's the son of God and the son of David, what he's saying is, he's trying to get us to think about Jesus and how Jesus moved from this incredible state of humiliation, that he humbled himself and took on human form And he was willing to endure pain and suffering. He humbled himself and he was exalted. He was exalted in power because of what he did on the cross and because of what he did specifically here in the resurrection. Paul never ever wants us to forget that the gospel is about Jesus, not about us. The gospel is about what has been done. Not what we have to do. Then, not only do we need to remember the heart of the gospel, but we need to remember this, the last one. And this is not, this is not my original thought. And I've said it a lot, and I know you've read this, but I just feel like every now and then I need to remind you I didn't make this up, okay? The gospel is news. It is not advice. The gospel is news. It is not advice. And that means that if you want to live in such a way that all of your bad things work out for good and all the good things will never be taken away and the best is yet to come, you better remember that the gospel is not advice, it's news, it's a declaration. Look at verse 17, where Paul says, yes, I'm not afraid of the gospel, verse 16, is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, and then for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. 
so that by faith we can receive that righteousness and from faith live in that righteousness because we are a people that need to live by faith. So Paul's talking about this gigantic idea in the scripture. Let me introduce you to a word if you've never heard it before called justification. The idea of justified. Now, here's how we can break it down and understand what he's saying. Justify. You ever, you ever use that phrase, justify? Justify yourself. Maybe you think about, about it sometimes. What, what if I said to you, Sam Jones Barbecue is the best barbecue in eastern North Carolina? You might say, justify that claim, Dave. You might already be on board. I don't know. But you might say, justify that claim. What you're saying is, Dave, please give me your reasons why you say that Sam Jones Barbecue is the best because right now I'm at odds with your statement. And if you can give me reasons as to why Sam Jones Barbecue is the best, my relationship to your statement might change. You might, you might give me good reasons so that I like your statement and I'm in agreement with your statement, I support your statement, and I'm on board. Now let's go a little deeper. Sin is our problem. Sin is us trying to be God. Sin is whenever we are trying to play the role of God, to, to be God, to, to put self in place of God or other things in place of God. And what happened when we rebelled? What happened when we rebelled against God? God wiped everybody out? No. God pursued, didn't he? Can you start tying some of these things together that we've talked about? God did not wipe everyone out when we rebelled against him. God decided to pursue us and to redeem, to save, to bring about salvation. God pursued so that he was willing to endure the wrath of his father on the cross. He came so that he would live a perfect life. He came so that he not only would feel the pain of suffering, but on the cross, he became sin. He didn't become a sinner, but he was treated as if he was sin for you and for me. God could have wiped everyone out, but he didn't. He pursued to redeem. In other words, when Jesus lived a perfect life and endured God's wrath on the cross that we rightly deserve, and when he broke death and we receive who Jesus is, it means that God's relationship to us has changed. It means that because of Jesus, Jesus has reconciled us to the Father so that God looks at us and says, I receive you. I accept you, you belong to me, you're my child, you are loved, you are set apart, I will be with you. So when Paul says, and he talks about this righteousness that has been revealed, He's trying to get us to remember, to live out of, and to be willing, if necessary, to die for. That the gospel is news. 
that we have contributed nothing. Even the faith that we have is a gift. Jesus has authored it. Jesus grows it. But Jesus has done everything. And what that means is that the worst thing that you've ever done, the worst part about you, will never define you. It means the greatest things that you've accomplished and all the skills that you think that you have, they won't hold you hostage either. It means that to receive Jesus means that you're not defined by the worst things about you or the best things about you. You are exclusively and forever defined by what Jesus says about you, period. And friends, friends, 